President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Fuller. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. Got an interesting show today. We've got a guest in the studio, John Davi. Uh, John, welcome to our studio today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're going to be talking with the professor just to kick off the market discussion. We had an interesting week. We had the Fed, not much going from the Fed professor, but we're starting to see some progress on tax reform. I saw you on CNBC, one of the few saying we are going to get tax reform, and then we got a little bit of progress there, or at least an inch of, uh, at least some some inkling of, of moving forward. Maybe you could just recap your, your thoughts here. Yeah, well, after this healthcare fiasco, they got to get something. <laughs> uh, it's even more insistent that they move on the on the tax form. Uh, and you know, I said that the repatriation and the tax corporate tax rates are, I think, the uh, easiest thing for them to agree on. I think they are going to be moving forward on that. And you're certainly right. The, the Fed actually, some people thought they would start announcing a schedule for reduction of balance sheet, um, they did not, but implied that they would uh, in the September meeting. In the meantime, uh, you know, inflation measures uh, are moving further away, further below the Fed's target. Um, uh, we saw, you know, saw a core rate of uh, inflation on the PCE this quarter. That was the lowest in, uh, in many, many years. We saw the ECI, which everyone thought, that's the Employment Cost Index came out this morning at the same time GDP. Uh, also was below expectations. Um, uh, last quarter ticked up to eight-tenths, and everyone said, ah, yes, the wage increases are coming, and yet now down again. So we're really having trouble there. And, in fact, the Fed in its statement took out the fact, uh, the word somewhat, we're running somewhat below. They say we are running below. So what's going on on the inflation front uh, is – is certainly making um, giving ammunition to the doves to 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 go very very slowly. I still think there'll probably one increase this year, but it's not a slam dunk. It really depends on how inflation goes. In the meantime, we had WTI just a uh, oil almost hitting fifty. Didn't help Exxon, which uh, <laughs> Exxon Mobil, which uh, actually uh, fell uh, below eighty today. It's the first time since the crash of uh, early sixteen when we had oil going to 28, um, uh, my prices are, are picking up despite the official numbers um, uh, are going down. Finally, should, uh, we should comment on GDP. I was actually a little disappointed in the results. Um, I thought we'd be in the high twos or maybe even three, and we came in at 2.6 below expectations. We revised down the first quarter from 1.4 to 1.2. What, what this means actually is that we have not did not hit – just missed two percent for the first half. Now um, you know we've been stuck in a two percent GDP world basically for three or four years, and I still think three th this quarter um, because of the momentum in consumption is going to be near three percent. But we're not really moving towards that as aggressively, certainly as the uh, Trump administration wanted to. Um, and I thought the data earlier data looked like it was. Uh, actually moving for in far as um, earnings are I mean we you know we, we had the Amazon disappointment this morning down four to five percent it's cut its loss in half I mean the Nasdaq is almost even because Google Tesla uh, Facebook and that Netflix are all up over one um, and the Dow which was down uh, you know around uh, oh, it was 50 60 points is just about flat right now this is what we've been seeing sell-offs People think it's start of a correction, and then later in the day, market recovers uh, and inches higher. 
So uh, nothing, nothing to break that spell yet. Uh, we got John here with the with a question for you, Professor. Hi, Professor. Yeah. Hi, John. Thanks um, for coming onto our show. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, in terms of uh, you know when you look at next year, right, the implied rate hikes uh, in the next twelve months, it's been steadily declining um, all year. Currently, right now, about one point three, which to me mm-hmm. seems you know, fairly low. Um, just curious on what you think, um, you know, for next year, if you think that what, what's currently implied in the market is, is low relative to, you know, your, your expectations. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, so many things. First of all, we don't even know the chairman, uh, you know, is going to be uh, next year. Um, so there could be some really big changes in the Fed. Could, could Trump get his infrastructure plan through uh, how fast is the Fed going to normalize its balance sheet. And, and by the way, I, I, I am somewhat resistant to the term normalization because we're not moving back to the old balance sheet and we're not going to be moving back to the old interest rate. So really it's just a reduction, but that does throw bonds onto the market. Um, but, you know, it's been my thesis for three years that uh, we are – and right now, I'd be surprised to see the 10-year break three, uh, even with an infrastructure plan in place. There's just too many deflationary forces uh, in, in the world economy that I think, uh, uh, and too much risk aversion where people stick with treasuries to bring us um, much higher. Uh, remember, we all thought that 3% was a slam dunk on the 10-year uh, by later this year. Now we're almost in August. And we're seeing a 2.23 10-year. Uh, uh, Fed might hike one quarter. They don't want to get towards inversion, certainly. Um, and they're, they're not. They're still certainly about 100 basis points away. But uh, the deficits are slowly gaining strength. Uh, and everyone is, is – and, and certainly if, if Trump reappoints um, Yellen, which he hinted at, um, although it's certainly not a slam dunk, because there is opposition to her, She's a liberal Democrat, would be not a lot of Republicans do want that uh, to be the head of the Fed. Uh, nonetheless, um, I, I think we're not going to see many more hikes. So I think the Fed funds market is, uh, you know, signaling exactly what you said, maybe one, two hikes over the next year, um, but no aggressive moves. Any uh, comments on what you saw from the tax reform announcement that they made? Um, you know, that we everybody's been, and I think you'd say the weakness in the dollar has priced in the fact that the bad tax was going to be dead uh, on arrival this year. Um, but yeah. they, they talked about trying to make these tax reforms permanent. Um, do you think, is there any chance that they can actually, and to make tax reform permanent, they have to do it in a deficit reduction way that it's not going right. to increase the deficit? So where, what do you think they can actually get done? Well, first of all, thanks for bringing that up. You know, on our show... I have said for months that there's not going to be a border adjustment tax, and now it's been put to rest. Uh, so, um, uh, and I think that's a good thing. I think that that was a mistake uh, uh, moving forward. But you're bringing up a very good thing. I mean, li- listen, you know, if we've also commented uh, 12 years ago when Bush got a big tax reductions, uh, had he made those permanent? Obama could not have unwound them. The only reason why they were unbound, unwound under the Bound administration was because they were set to expire in 10 years. Uh, so if you can only do it for 10 years, you're at the really, uh, and, and they're going to expire, you're at, uh, you know, you're at the risk of whoever happens to control the presidency and Congress at that particular time. So clearly the Republicans would like to make it permanent. I think they've got to get, obviously, I think they've got to get together with some Democrats. I don't think they can do it by themselves, because under those circumstances, from my understanding, although it seems complicated, um, they, they could not stop a filibuster. They would need to, they couldn't bypass a potential filibuster in the Senate. Um, uh, now, as I say, there's a lot of Democrats that do want the repatriation of the funds abroad, and do want a lowering of the corporate tax, can the Trump administration work with them to make this a permanent feature? Uh, this is yet to be seen, but, uh, you know, I mean, I think after the fiasco with the health care and how it played out, 
Um, they may be, you know, the Republicans may be open to um, to kind of some sort of uh, reconciliation here that would would make them permanent. I would love to see it certainly permanent because I, you know, we all saw the Bush tax cuts disappear in thin air uh, when the ten year term was up because uh, they did not make them permanent uh, when it was passed, and I guess it was two thousand and five, two thousand six. So, so maybe just um, briefly, let me say goodbye. I mean, I, I saw briefly on CNBC for people who ha- weren't watching, you had a a ten percent further gains. Maybe any any further thoughts on on just yeah. where you thought the markets we, were? Yeah, if we, I mean, you know, we're we're uh, you know we're only about two hundred points away from twenty two thousand on the Dow, and I said that a few months ago when it crossed twenty one, there were people that were surprised. If we can get tax corporate tax rate down. We don't need it 15%, even 20 22%. And we can get repatriation of those. We've got another easy 10% in the market. Earnings are holding in well. Um, you know, despite Amazon's miss. They don't make that much earnings anyway, so it's not a... Yeah, they don't have hardly any earnings anyways. Um, I mean, a lot actually does depend on oil, and it's going to be interesting. I mean, that's the... That's a sector that has been dragging earnings over the last several quarters, and we're all looking for, uh, you know, it, it to recover. Um, we all wonder about oil. As soon as oil, you know, passes 50-51, uh, the frackers sell in the futures market heavily, lock in a, a spread that they could make money at, and we've been bouncing between 42 and 52 for months and months and months. So we're just at the upper end of, uh, near the upper end of that now. So. You know, there's there's uh, there there's certainly a, a lot a lot going on. But with respect to the world economy moving ahead and the weakness of the dollar, which, as you mentioned, is still getting weaker uh, as as Europe uh, um, uh, does recover, um, that's going to be good for dollar earnings of all the multinationals. Very good, Professor. Have a have a great weekend here. Thank you very much. Now, let me turn my conversation to John Davi. He's the founder, chief investment officer of Astoria Portfolio Advisors, made the trek down to Philadelphia to be here with us in our, our Wharton studio. So thanks again, John, for coming down here. Um, you know, you and I have known each other for a while. You've been involved in the ETF industry, both at MacroStrategy, Equity Research Derivatives at Morgan Stanley, producing a lot of institutional ETF content there. Um, you've been involved in the sort of investment landscape for a number of years, even before that, working at Merrill Lynch, Quant Strategy. Uh, maybe talk Talk to our listeners. You know, you've sort of set up this new firm, Astoria Portfolio Advisors. Talk about your your firm, your and and why you you know you created it. Sure. Uh, so thanks again for uh, for having me. And uh, I'll just say from a compliance uh, standpoint that uh, my firm does use some Wisdomtree products. And uh, I'm personally a shareholder of Wisdom Tree stock. So. Well, thank you for that. We yeah. appreciate it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I um, decided to start uh, Astoria Portfolio Advisors. Um, the firm officially launched in June, and we started accepting capital in uh, July. So what we do is we specialize in the construction management and advising of uh, low-cost ETF model portfolios. So what I try and do is bring all the institutional experience that I've garnered over the last uh, 17, 18 years and basically apply those strategies using ETFs to build low-cost wealth management solutions. Um, so I'm going, um, my, my audience and my target uh, clients are retail, um, direct individuals, along with financial advisors. Tell and me, where do, you, where do you come up with the story of Portfolio Advisors is the name? Uh, so I was born and raised in uh, Astoria, Queens. Um, so the, the story with Astoria is, uh, in, as far as Astoria, Queens, is that you know, it's always been located five miles um, from Manhattan. Um, you know, but for decades, you know, it was an underappreciated asset, and then just all of a sudden, in the last you know ten years, the market has you know kind of realized its value, and property has you know skyrocketed. And um, you know, some people could argue that a story is still cheap relative to like parts of Brooklyn and Manhattan. So it's kind of like you know, interesting story in terms of you know, do you buy a story of property now, given that you know it's still cheaper, or do you think it's expensive because you know? Ten years ago, the property is worth like uh, a fifth of what it currently is valued at, uh, and I'm not making any comments on a story of property. It's just, 
you know, it's where I was born yeah. and raised, and that's part of like how I evaluate asset classes. Um, you know, when we invest uh, in the market. So, to, to talk a little bit about the ETF model portfolios, you're going out and to build ETF portfolios. Why did you think uh, you left a, a great job at Morgan Stanley ETF side, institutional ETF team there? I mean, what was so compelling to you of the marketplace that you wanted to launch your own ETF advisory firm? So when I think about the current um, investment advisory world, um, you know, generally um, people that come from the retail um, side of the equation, and what I'm trying to do is bring all the institutional products and services that I have, um, you know, access to and I built, um, and give it direct to individuals, you know, in a low cost format. Um, so you know, I thought there was an opportunity in the marketplace, and uh, you know, I wanted to, you know, I've always wanted to own my own company. Great. So, so when you think about how you're going to differentiate versus other ETF model managers, so talk a little bit about your value proposition and, and how you think your portfolios will, will differ for people listening in. Sure. So maybe I'll just talk about the investment process sure. um, just to give people some, some pit, tidbits there. So, you know, basically like three steps. So first is, you know, we do disciplined macro quantitative um, uh, research. So we use um, economic models that we build in-house, and we, we try and do is to determine if asset classes are rich or cheap. And then, you know, not only are they cheap, but is the market going to realize its value? Okay, and the classic example is Japan. Japan was cheap for decades. Um, and the last the, three decades, it's been <laughs> in a down market. Yeah, although that's like technically Changing. like not true because it was a very tradable market, even those you know 20, 30 years that it was mired in um, deflation. Um, but you know, it really became a viable long-term investment strategy when Abe came into office, yeah. right? And that kind of really changed the uh, you know changed the landscape. So we look for things you know catalysts that you know will allow a, uh, an asset class that you know is cheap that's going to you know kind of go towards fair value. So everything we do is data-driven. Um, you know, it's not subjective. We invest you know, with a long-term time horizon, so one two years out. So you know, personally speaking, there's so much emphasis on trying to capture short-term alpha. Um, and you think about all the resources that are um, that are being attributed to, you know, one-week returns, one-month returns. I feel like people are leaving long-term returns on a table. And, um, you know, so I'm trying to capture, like, market cycles, you know, one, two-year out. So we take long-term view and we take active bets. Um, and that's what we're trying to solve for in terms of building solutions for our clients. We blend active and passive together. I know you've talked about that a lot on your show. Um, so that's one part. So macro quant research. Second is, you know, we look at, um, we do like quantitative macro risk modeling in order to determine when we should expand our risk budget um, or uh, minimize it. So like, for instance, I'm working with several ETF providers um, in order to kind of use some of their um, risk analytic systems. Um, one of them in particular, BlackRock, I'm, I'm working with their USI shares group in order to access Aladdin. I think they have, you know, one of my competitors over here <laughs> might have to kick you off the program. Yeah, here. I think no, you know, fourteen trillion dollars, you know, using that system. So anyway, we're trying to use that risk model in order to kind of build better managed portfolios for for my clients. So we try and embed risk controls throughout the investment process, but you know, it, it's looking at the probabilities of outcomes and then model modeling it accordingly. And then as far as when we actually get to choose an ETF, we don't just go with like a low cost solution. We'll go with um, you know, whatever best fits the, the, the solution that we're trying to build for the client. Um, and the classic example I always give is, you know, if you look at the Russell 2000 index versus, I mean, your firm has like an earnings weighted approach and, and even something like the S&P 600, which is, is, has a similar quality filter. If you just look, and I'm, I'm using S&P 600 versus Russell 2 just because it's the longest history, S&P 600 has outperformed Russell 2 by 400% since 93, right? So it's like, why would you use Russell 2? I mean, yes, it's very liquid. It's like a 20 plus billion. I mean, it's maybe 30 billion plus ETF at this point. I mean, it's a monster in terms of the liquidity on the Russell 2, but you're absolutely right. The S&P has a simple quality screen and it's done significantly better over the long run. So that's an interesting an interesting one. Glad you picked up on that. Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about the, the model. So you talked a little bit about your quant process, uh, macro-oriented, looking for cheap assets where there's a changing situation. Um, how do you think also about building portfolios? I mean, you're offering a few different model portfolios. Is there any anything you want to talk about just at a high level, the types of, of approaches you're trying to offer to clients? 
Sure. So for for now, we have three models, um, and, and we can customize further. But you know, the one um, flagship model is a multi-asset risk allocation. So we're looking at equities, bonds, commodities, and alternatives. And uh, as I mentioned, we're trying to capture you know long-term time horizons. So there's not a ton of our balancing, but um, you know that we're taking active bets versus our benchmark in order to solve for growth um, over time. The second is um, we have like an income strategy. We call it risk-managed dynamic income. So we look for um, you know fixed income asset classes where we think are cheap and attractively priced. So things like loans and uh, mortgage-backed securities, uh, emerging market debt, um, and, and we you know rebalance amongst the fixed income areas that we think are you know attractive and, and provide for income. And then third is for investors that have. Uh, you know, kind of retirement money uh, with a long-term time horizon, you know, whether it's three to five years out or even longer. Um, so for that, you know, we vo- we model it very, very differently because, you know, when you have like a very long time horizon, let's say a 401k, you know, 20 years out, IRA, you know, you really have to keep costs low and you want to be tilted towards equities because obviously equities do better than uh, most asset classes over time. Let me uh, let me just reintroduce our guest here. We have John Davi, CIO and founder of Astoria Portfolio Advisors. He gave us Astoria, his story on Astoria, uh, <laughs> looking for cheap assets. So, John, when you think about where that multi-asset risk model is today, um, where are you finding cheap values where there is an inflection point? Where is you think some of the best opportunities for that multi-asset portfolio? Sure. So the big call that I've I've had, um, you know, since the start of this year is that this pro-growth cyclical recovery, which you know really started in the U.S. in the first quarter, and then moved overseas after Brexit last year, that it would continue to shift to the rest of the world. So for me, you know, global X U.S. equities have a greater margin of safety, better earnings prospects, and then there's more leverage to global growth. So. You know, I, I believe that the recovery and, and professors, you know, highlighted a little bit earlier, but I believe the recovery is, you know, very much global in nature. You've got earnings that are uh, inflecting higher. And, you know, the macro data, fine, it moderated a little bit, but it's still very elevated. Uh, and then, you know, just big picture. I mean, the Fed is still very, very accommodative. Right. And you've got central banks overseas that are very, very supportive. And then, you know, equities relative to this. Um, in the context of low interest rates and loose financial conditions, you know, I think are very attractive. So, you know, what's cheap, what we think there's, you know, catalyst, I mean, emerging market equities and FX for, for sure, that's, um, you know, very well positioned within our multi-asset risk allocation fund. I think personally the environment for EM is, is as good as it's been in years. I mean, you've got this weak dollar, you've got low rates, uh, you've got this China credit-driven expansion, you got the margin of safety with their cheaper valuations. Um, so, you know, something like, uh, you know, India specifically within EM, um, you know, looks very attractive. And I know you've, you've had a dedicated show in India. Um, you know, Japan is very interesting as well. I, I mean, Japan, by definition, is a play on the rest of the world. It's, it's a play in global growth. You've got, you know, this 20% discount versus the U.S. on a 12-month forward PE basis. You've got earnings growth that are projected to hit a three-year high. So, And then, you know, BOJ is still very supportive. So those are, you know, kind of some areas that we like within the global equity um, standpoint. And then I, I just want to highlight one thing because this, you know, I'm looking at CNBC and there's Trump on every day. And, um, you know, the, for me, the biggest story is not Trump this year and his inability to get stuff through, right? That's what, ke- that's the noise in the marketplace. The real story is the change in leadership, Right, so EM is up twenty percent year to date. Right, it's, it's annualized in thirty five percent. You know, if you look at things like EFA small caps, Acquia, US small caps, I mean, they're up like twenty twenty five percent. So small caps are a play on the local economy, right? And cyclical growth versus more defensive large caps. Yeah. So I mean, the, you know, that's a signal that the market is sending you, and you know, you get one or two of these signals a year, and you know, you need to capitalize on them. So. Um, you know, I think that's really the story of, of, of 2017 is this, you know, cyclical global recovery. Um, anything on the bond side on on how you feel? The professor said 3% on the 10-year. I mean, how, does that influence where, where you're positioning any of the portfolios? Sure. So, you know, within fixed income, I would say that, um, you know, there's areas that I think you need to be careful. Um, things like U.S. high-yield credit where, you know, the late cycle cis, uh, risks loom large. So, you know, 
I mean, when I first started my career, I, I remember the guy that did high yield research at the time, you know, was talking about eight, nine percent in high yield credit. And, you know, he was saying that, you know, you used to get 10 percent. I mean, now you're talking about five percent. So it's just not worth the risk reward, in my opinion. Mm. Um, I think stuff like, you know, loans and, and preferred securities. Uh, I mean, e- emerging market debt is very attractive, in my opinion, you know, to play an EM. I'm partly on that EM currency. Yeah. And then, you know, things like even mortgage-backed securities, right? I mean, if you just look at the mortgage-backed security sector, right? Look at like 30-day realized vol over the last five, six years. It, it's ranged between 1% to 6%, right? And it yields a little over 2%. High-yield credit, which, you know, kind of acts like equity, realized vol over the last five, six years has ranged from 2 to 25%. So, and you get 5% yield. So it's for me, it's like so much more risk relative to like the yield. Um, and you know, my personal belief is that I I, I don't think we're going to see. Uh, let's say in the back end of the curve, I think we're going to cap around three three and a half percent. I mean, there's so much demand for income globally. Yeah, I used to travel to Asia for work a lot, and you know, Taiwan, Singapore, and you know, investors overseas would ask me about like high yield muni ETFs, and there's no tax benefit for them, right? And they're still very interested in it because it was giving you five percent. Well, you get negative yields in Japan; they're yeah. big buyers, you know. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, you've had this emotional scar of two 50% drawdowns in equities over the last 17 years. So, you know, people are just, uh, you know, frustrated. And, you know, that's part of the reason why, you know, you have all this flows into uh, fixed income bond funds, yeah. right? Year to date, there's like $100 billion into U.S. bond ETFs and mutual funds. And, you know, if you look at the equity number, it's like flat, right? Even though equities have outperformed bonds by like 9%. So that speaks to like, you know, the most hated bull market ever. And then that's probably why we keep rallying even on days like today when, you know, in the afternoon, like as Professor uh, Siegel said. So, uh, I mean, one way we can get higher rates is by getting clarity on like fiscal, um, you know, stimulus and tax cuts. But I mean, the probability of, of any of that happening, in my opinion, it feels very low. So that could uh, be the upside surprise. That'll be that'll be interesting to watch. Tell me on your positioning. You know, one of the things you talk about as you you know you think about changing the portfolio. One of the things you you you've talked to me about a little bit is how you're trying to apply game theory to how you make portfolio changes. Maybe talk through why you think that's you know and unique to your process. Okay, sure. So I always say that you know when I first started in the business, my my manager and my mentor now. Uh, you know, he gave me like a bunch of books to read and, uh, you know, it was great. And, and you know, it really kind of shaped my passion for the industry. And, you know, these 50 books all talk about valuations, buying cheap and about how do you evaluate an asset class. But there's nothing really written about game theory or what you can say positioning or sentiment. So, you know, it's become a much more increasingly part of the puzzle when, when um, you know, position and portfolio. So I used to put out a, a piece at Morgan Stanley and we talked about position across product and, it was very well received. And um, so what we do is we look at a variety of sentiment indicators, positioning. Uh, we look at you know mutual fund flows, ETF flows, CFTC um, data. And what we try and do is you know see what is priced in the market and you know what we think will happen. Um, and then you know just try and focus on the distribution of outcomes and then model it accordingly. So the example, maybe it's easier if I just give you an example. So Post credit crisis, you know, all this talk about secular stagnation, low growth, low return world, and you know, people piled into the yield trade, right, in a big, big fashion, and they put all these curve trades, roll down, carry trades, and what happened is that we actually had probably, you know, we had one of the best bull markets ever, and people were largely absent from it because they were so concerned about secular stagnation. So, if, just to give you the numbers, you know, I. I you probably have read them, but you know there's been almost two trillion dollars of bond funds since since '08, and um, you know the number for equities, right? When you combine ETFs and mutual funds, is actually negative, mm-hmm. right? You've had negative like a hundred billion of inflows, so it just talks to, you know, people, um, you know, focusing on you know these big catchphrases and just not looking at like the bigger picture, which is that you've had this, you know, um, recovery in the global economy. Now you have like this good earnings story, um, so we look for you know position and sentiment across you know, a variety of indicators to see where positions offside. So we're in the final s- stages here of the first half of the show. We're bringing Pankaj Patel in the second half of the show. Um, maybe you could just sort of summarize as you think about the your marketplace now competing for ETF asset allocations, trying to manage people's portfolios. 
you know, where can people find what you're doing? What, how are you trying to reach people, people who may be attracted by the types of things they, they heard you say? Sure. So we disseminate um, content. So I, my whole career has been involved on distributing content. So we, uh, if you go to our website, um, Astoria, A-S-T-O-R-I-A, port, P-O-R-T-A-D-V.com, uh, also on LinkedIn and Twitter. So that's how we disseminate content. Um, we f- I feel like that's a value and an edge that uh, I personally have in the marketplace. And then bringing all the institutional experience um, you know, in a low-cost format for advisors and for uh, direct individuals. Very good. We've been talking with John Davi, founder CIO of Astoria Portfolio Advisors. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 111. We're going to be back after a short break. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. I'm here in our Philadelphia studio with John Davi, founder CIO of Story Portfolio Advisors. Joining us via the phone is Pankaj Patel, who is the head of quantitative research, co-manager of investment advisory business at Cirrus Research. Pankaj, welcome to our program. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, And thanks for having me on your program. We're looking forward to the conversation. Uh, Maybe you could give us a little bit about your background, talk a little bit about uh, Cirrus Research, what you're focused on, uh, and how you got there. Yeah. Uh, so again, uh, thanks for having me on this program. Uh, I, I like most people, you know, start on the sell side and move to the buy side. I actually started my career on the buy side as a quant analyst, and then move to the sell side. Also, even b- before that, I actually after college, I spent 15 plus years in the industry as an engineer. I worked as an engineer for a couple of small companies in India and a couple of small companies in U.S and then uh, left my job to uh, went to school at Rensselaer RPI and from there I worked at GE for 7 years before joining on the buy side very good so what talk talk to us a little bit about serious research what is your focus there how do you serve uh, primarily an institutional client audience from what i understand yes so at serious research we serve institutional clients uh, what we would call is we do innovative analysis and insight for large, mid, small, and micro-cap institutional investors. Our focus is equities, so we do equities. We add value to their activities through leveraging sector and industry fundamentals, offering unique risk and style models that supplement their market timing and stock selection efforts. We identify under and overvalued sectors and make active calls on select industries within those sectors. Also, we provide you know, consistent comparison across global equity. Uh, again, we have data for all the publicly traded companies. Uh, we have fundamental data. Uh, for example, we have the balance sheet, cash flow statement, and profit and lo- uh, loss. Uh, and then in, also we have earnings expectations data for all the companies. So using this, we create our models. Uh, so go ahead. Yeah. So so when you think about what your your services you're you're providing, you're talking to a lot of institutional clients. What is sort of the common themes that that you're focused on in your research today? I mean, where what's what's the the main things in focus? Well, again, we as as I mentioned, we talk about the whole equity market, and let me highlight maybe a couple of things. We have a couple of risk indicators, or we call it uh, serious indicators. For example, one of the indicator is a serious risk indicator. It's a risk appetite model in identifying market timing opportunities. Other examples are, you know, we also include, uh, for example, uh, the polarization index to see whether certain sector is overvalued or undervalued. And, and so what are the, is anything you can highlight today? I mean, is there a risk indicator saying we should be in the market, should we be out of the market? Uh, yeah, so like uh, looking at the serious polarization index, uh, looking at the large cap, you know, people are talking about large cap companies have, you know, uh, the valuations are uh, going high. But uh, as per our measure, we don't think it is that high as it was in, you know, during the bubble time. Uh, other other questions we are getting from the, a lot of uh, institutional investors are how the ETF flows are impacting uh, their performance and their portfolios. So I want, like John Davi is actually expert in the ETF. He's on, uh, as a guest of the show. I won't talk too much about ETF, but in general, we we all know that you know there's huge inflows in ETF over the last few years, and then right now the ETF market, the total is about four trillion globally, three trillion in U.S. is about close to 
10% in AUM or slightly above 10%. But a couple of things I want to highlight is the trading volume. 35% of the trading volume is done in ETF today in U.S. Also, ETF has a huge short interest. Roughly 20% of the total short interest is in ETF. Also, the end of the day flows, around 40% of the volume is at the end of the day for the ETF. So these have impact on these institutional money managers. Yeah, that's very interesting. John, so you sat on the institutional ETF desk at Morgan Stanley. What did you, I mean, any observations from, from that experience? I mean, when you looked at flows, how did you talk to clients about that? I mean, how did you use flow data either to talk about the market or, or any just general commentary on ETF flows? I, I think, you know, generally the flows will track the macro trends in a marketplace. So if, you know, if Europe does well, you know, you tend to see a lot of inflows into the European ETFs. And, and you know, if emerging markets do well in a particular, you know, quarter, you tend to see, you, you tend to see flows traffic, you know, the macro themes. But, I mean, the, the part that people used to pick on a lot was like high yield credit. And, you know, I can tell you that, you know, talking to the credit desk, um, you know, during times of distress, you would see people actually traffic in the ETF marketplace because it was a liquid bid ask, and you know the actual volume increased a lot on days where you know credit sold off. So I'd be a lot more worried if the high yield credit ETF volume and liquidity fell when you had spikes in, in uh, volatility in the, in the credit space. So. No, people, that is one of the most hot topics in ETFs is, is the ETF going to create some problem for the high yield category generally because the underlying bonds aren't that liquid and the ETFs trade so much? Um, and, and your point is that during the stress points, the ETF volume actually picks up. Yes, yeah, it, time and time again. And, and the discount to NAV actually narrowed uh, over the years. So, I mean, pa Pankaj mentioned a stat about how, you know, ETFs, I mean, and Pankaj, I'm not sure what source you use, but I saw BlackRock had done a study uh, in conjunction with the market and a few other data vendors. And basically, ETFs were like 10% of uh, total uh, bond and stock uh, markets. Yeah. So, and then, you, you know, the stat you mentioned about $4 trillion in ETFs, I mean, there's uh, $15 trillion in mutual funds. So I think ETFs are still a small piece of the pie, maybe getting bigger, but not exactly like it's um, a bubble in the, in the passive ETF marketplace. Yeah, uh, so I mentioned about 10% or so in AUM. So the so other thing, maybe if I can jump in here. Sure. Uh, other in the question, so as our uh, clients are institutional money managers and they invest in individual stocks, so they are asking us, Pankaj, how come, you know, how, how much impact these ETFs have on the individual stock? So just to go on that, we find that in small and mid-cap stocks, up to 30% of the market cap can be held by many of these ETFs up to 30%, so that's huge. Uh, also in large cap, on the high end, up to 20% of individual companies is held by many of these ETFs. So that, that tells you that around only 70 to 80% of the shares are available to the individual portfolio manager. Now what are the impact of these? It can have both positive and negative impact on the individual companies. On the positive side, shares become more liquid, and on the negative side, they become more volatile. Also, other thing on the valuation, as the more flows come into the ETF, you know, as soon as the flows come in, the ETF will buy those shares proportion to the weight of the shares in that index. And that creates upward price pressure on this stock. And we call it a low information trader or dumb money. Now, it causes a beta effect, and then it can be positive or negative. So far, it is positive because as the flows are coming into ETF, Many of these stocks have a significant risk premium. And we looked at a couple of academic studies, and one of the academic studies cite that 56 basis points per month of risk premium can be uh, commended by these, some of these stocks. Now, what's interesting, you know, everybody's saying the flows to passive is going to drive up correlations in the market. Um, one of the things I saw on Twitter this week, I had tweeted out at a chart. It was, you know, pretty an amazing look at just cross correlations of the market in, in recent times. And actually, the cross correlation right now across stocks is actually declining. You say one of the reasons why we have low volatility in the marketplace is just how low correlations are. It's like fly in the face of the, all the idea that ETFs are driving up correlations. I don't know if you guys have seen that, that chart or, or how correlations have been trending recently. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, so in general, there is some impact of correlation, but I agree. And we had done a lot of studies when I was at even Credit Suisse, where we had a, we worked closely with the ETF desk. So people j just assume that because of ETF, there is a high correlation, but there is some impact. Actually, you know, some of the higher 
holdings, uh, stocks which have higher holdings in the ETF in terms of their market cap, they are slightly higher correlated. Sure. Um, any so be going a little bit going beyond just the ETF um, focus. Um, one of the things that you do at Cirrus looks at dividend investing. I mean, any any thoughts on the way you guys approach dividend investing, sustainable dividend investing? Yeah. So uh, uh, thanks for that question. I've been st- studying dividend uh, stocks since 2002 when I started on a uh, sell side. So at Cirrus, and you know, we had developed this we call a multi-factor dividend model. What we do here is we look at high yield, low payout, and growing dividend companies. So when you combine these three factors, high yield, low payout, and dividend growth, as a group of that factors will get you into right combination in terms of valuation for the companies. And over long run, again, over long run, depending on the market cap, large, bit, or small, a portfolio consistently created and rebalanced every quarterly using these factors has outperformed their respective index anywhere from 5 to 8%. On that note, I will mention that more recently, in recent six months, actually dividend strategies are underperforming as a you know, Fed raise rate. Uh, but that will also always happen. But I'm talking more longer term, anywhere from two to three plus year cycle. This strategy has performed very well. We're talking to Pankaj Patel, who's quant research over at Cirrus Research. In the studio, I have John Davi, the founder of Astoria Portfolio Advisors. Uh, on this idea of, of dividends, um, you know, a lot of people talk about the payout ratio, how it's changed over time. Uh, a lot of people talk about the interest rate sensitivity. Any general comments? You know, do you think that there's a premium being paid to high-yield stocks today? Uh, do you have any sense of if you look for high-yield versus dividend growth stocks, is there any... Um, relative difference today that you think is different than normal? Well, in, maybe I'll talk about longer-term study, for example. So we looked at, and actually, uh, Professor Siegel's uh, data, uh, uh, we looked at you know, from, um, from 1871 through present. You know, we find two different environments. Up to 1945, you know, the payout ratios were much higher. And after 1945, payout ratio went down. Yeah. And the, more re- the, the reason for that, we think, is that so today, the, uh, and maybe it is just the media, the finance media, or the, the how it is being reported. For example, XYZ company uh, is paying $1 dividend, and then if the news comes out, now they're going to pay $0.99 cent dividend, like $0.01 cent less, the stock will tank. So what companies are doing, they're paying out less and less. So as of now, S&P 500 companies, the payout ratio is 50%. It went down to 30% in two, around 2011, and it's crept, crept up again in the last few, few years. So the companies now maintain at least 50% cushion. So that's one. Other thing is, if you go back in time, you know, the uh, dividend yield was higher than the bond yield. But after 1960s, the bond yield became higher than the dividend yield. So those yeah. are some macro observations I would mention. Yeah, I, mean, I we see I see firms doing as much buybacks today as dividends on a net basis. You know, you even get close to two percent buyback yield. So in some ways, the pay ratio hasn't changed. They're just switching to buybacks over dividends from from some of the stuff I see. Yeah, well, on the buyback, you know, one thing again, I've done a lot of work on that. Generally, again, in in general, companies buy back their share at the wrong time. You know, guess when the companies are buying back share, everything going well, they have a lot of cash flow, a lot of earnings. Guess what their prices are at that time, the highest level, right? And then, and I've seen examples of companies where they were buying their shares at much higher level, but then things didn't work out, they need to raise money, they were issuing shares at half the price. Uh, So also buyback is mostly concentrated in tech area, so people have to keep that in mind also. Yeah. So maybe I know one of the other things that you've done at Cirrus is you focus on hedge-oriented strategies. Maybe talk a little bit about how you've concentrated on, on the hedge index. Yeah. So on, on that, you know, as our, our clients include long-only guys and the hedge fund. So what we find that the, the value efficacies tend to dry shorting results, which call into, you know, we, we would say that will call into the uh, question of the hedge fund cycles. Our analysis indicates that the short component of the hedge fund results are likely to be more effective in periods in which market responds to valuation gap. Again, it's common sense. When the valuation matters, the short component works. If the valuation doesn't matter, like in more recent period, the short component doesn't work. 
So in those, and again, we issued a report just, you know, this week, where we say that, like, look, in this time, the people don't care about as much valuation, so make sure about your short component, and probably go more long than short if you can do that. Also, we changed our stance in, uh, more recently from changing from pro-cyclical stance to more visible growth bias. Uh, so uh, our work indicates that when the profit cycle is maturing, we find that you want to be have a growth bias in your portfolio because the, the earnings are kind of getting slower and slower or getting re- reduced a little bit. So in those environments, you want to be a little bit more growthy bias. So, John, any comments on where you think the environment is, how that compares to what Pankaj was just saying? Um, I, actually, I was just going to make a comment about the, what, what you had mentioned before about correlations and, and how correlations have gone down despite the fact that there's people arguing that it's a bubble and Morgan Stanley has this cross-asset correlation index, and, and I agree that it's been going down, but that to me is you know, why I think now active management is, is attractive is because you know, correlations are low, the Fed is shifting from monetary policy and has begun this tightening cycle, you've got this massive sector dispersion. Um, so I just wanted to touch on that. Yeah. And then, you know, Pankaj, just a question for you on, on the earnings. I mean, do, do you have any views on current earnings season and how it's shaping up and, you know, the biases that you mentioned before about whether you should be in growth DE or in other areas? Yeah, actually, uh, so we we also monitor, you know, all large, mid, and small cap earnings. Actually, this is the peak week for the second quarter earnings. Uh, more than 100 companies in, in S&P 500 are going to report this 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 week. Actually, most of them are reported. So just on that note, in the second quarter earnings are expected to, as of now, you know, most recent data, by 11% in terms of earnings. So which is pretty good, you know, very healthy earnings growth. And the market has gone up in last three to four weeks, you know, more recently uh, is just because of this earning. So on the, you know, we also kind of look at surprises. So 73% of the companies so far has reported has beaten their analyst expectations. Long-term average is about 66%. So that's pretty good. On the revenue side also, we saw about 5% increase in revenue. Which is again healthy uh, for uh, for so far, and 70% of the companies have reported their revenue above analyst expectation. Again, the average for the long term is about 59%. So solid corporate earnings has helped equity prices in the last four to six weeks, and again we believe this is going to continue uh, uh, the, the earning cycle. So overall, you know, the, overall the, the the outside US there is a decent growth. Uh, large cap companies. Uh, so within US, we would suggest people to keep stay towards larger cap mm. in, in their respective markets. For example, in large cap, stay towards large cap. In mid cap, also stay towards larger of the mid cap. And in small cap, stay t- towards larger of the small cap. Let me ask on on that. Is that is that because of the earnings cycle? I mean, when you think about, you know, a lot of people say earnings are constrained to GDP growth. So we have two percent GDP growth. We've got eleven percent earnings growth and a lot higher revenue growth. How much do you think is the dollar directly translating? So this foreign profits, foreign revenue, just coming in higher with the weak dollar. Uh, and is that in somewhat manifestation of, hey, stay with the larger caps versus small caps? Because so small caps don't have the revenue abroad. Is that is that consistent with what you're seeing? Yeah, kind of exactly. So, And I, like we cannot, as a quant, we would like to know exact number, but it is very difficult to kind of come up with the what is the impact of the dollar yeah. weakness, right? So because some companies have production in U.S., some companies have production outside U.S., and so on. So without giving exact number, yes, definitely this is helping. Also, the Asia uh, overall emerging market is growing steadily, and the larger companies have higher exposure to those emerging markets, and that's helping. Yeah, no, you definitely see that. It, it just feels like, you know, there's a few tailwinds for U.S. equities, right? When you think about the earnings, you know, uh, inflecting higher, like Pankaj uh, noted, and the fact that the dollar sell-off, you know, good for the multinationals. But how and, much of is that is rear view versus, right? So we know that's happened. Um, and then the question is, how much has the dollar already moved? How much is people just discounting Trump getting anything done? So small caps haven't benefited from the corporate tax reform yet, um, whereas large caps already have a low tax rate. So if they actually get anything done on taxes, maybe, you know, small caps, which have been, been crushed road to large caps this year, maybe it's time to start thinking about small caps again. Pankaj, you disagree. So where do you, where, where's, where's that thesis wrong? <laughs> well, so on that, I would still stay towards the large cap. Until, see, I believe until I see the signs of kind of uh, small cap starting to work again. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, you look at EFA small caps, you look at Acquiex U.S. small caps. I mean, they're literally up, you know, 20% this year and U.S. small caps nowhere near that, right? So to to your point a little bit, Jeremy, you know, it could be attractive if you think that there's going to be something. I mean, stocks don't have anything priced in from a Trump perspective. So to me, that's interesting in and of itself. Yeah, the, the expectations, they came in at the year very high. Small caps got huge rally second half of last year. Um and expecting Trump to get something done on corporate tax rates, and they do benefit more, and yet a strong dollar also helps small caps over large caps that are all reversed. And so now the question is, does it reverse again? Yeah. And then just a question for you, Pankaj, in terms of sectors, any yeah. sectors you like, and, and what does your quantitative work show um, what looks attractive? Yeah, well, at sector level, you know, in terms of earnings, financials, technology, and energy, again, you know, it relatively has the best earnings growth so far in this quarter we are looking at. Only utility sector has a negative earning growth. On the sales side, again, energy, technology, and materials has the best sales growth, and telecom is the only sector with negative sales growth. So we're in our, our final countdown, about three minutes left. Um, anything that we haven't covered, Pankaj, where you think that uh, serious research is focused on, things that you think the, the listeners might be might find interesting? Yeah, one thing I think I kind of mentioned it, but let me, so we, we have what we call serious polarization quotient. Which, which indicates that large cap are not as expensive during the tech bubble. And we have issued this report in a few weeks ago. So again, despite recent concern about the equity valuation, we note that the polarization, particularly in large cap, is not a problem. The CPQ index suggests that the valuation of the leadership stock still remain benign. This is partially explained by the recent rotation from, of market leadership out of financials and energy stock into tech sector. Again, so we, 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 we've been getting a lot and more and more questions about, you know, is it frothy and all that. So now just quick example, like during the 98 to 2000 tech, you know, bubble, the P ratios were in 500 plus. Still today, you know, even again, you know, the P ratios are not that range. That's what we are saying. Sure. Um, John, anything from, you know, from the way you look at the markets or any other background that you've from, from your Morgan Stanley days, anything you thought we should focus on in, in the final closing minutes here? Um, I mean, just to point out, um, you know, so in terms of like the flattening yield curve, which, you know, has definitely flattened quite a bit. And, and if you look at like um, some CFTC um, speculative position data, I mean, there's some pretty big, massive bets that are being put on in terms of curve flattening. I would just say that you know, until the yield curve inverts, right? That's usually the kiss of death for equities. Uh, the recession not- indicator. This is when the short-term <laughs> rates, uh, Bernanke or now Yellen, when they keep hiking rates and the long-term, and they get above the ten-year, um, that's the the big problem. Yeah, I think until the yield curve inverts, I think you can stay long pro-growth cyclical equities on a global basis. Pankaj, any views there? No, um, I would kind of generally agree with what John said. Um, so this has been a, a very good discussion. Pankaj Patel from Cirrus Research focused on institutional marketplace, a lot of great research. Um, so people looking at large cap, mid cap, small caps, you can you can look for for Pankaj. Any place they they should they should uh, they should find you, Pankaj. You want to highlight? Yeah, it is our you know Cirrus Research uh, website, cirrus-res.com. Uh, they can look at and then they can you know email us if they have interest, and we'll come back to them. Very good. And, and John Davi, CIO, founder of Astoria Portfolio Advisors. Thanks for coming down to the studio here with us, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, uh, and our sound engineer, Tatiana. Uh, thank you for, for joining us. You can listen to our Behind the Markets podcast as well. Um, have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.